Welcome to NAOP San Francisco Bay Area's podcast, where we engage, deliberate, and highlight the commercial real estate market and its leaders. Our goal is to reach our listeners in our community through dynamic engagements both in and around commercial real estate. We explore how the industry works firsthand from all facets. Our intention is to keep our listeners up to date with what's happening in the market, conversations with senior leaders, political issues impacting the industry, and more. If you like what you hear, please like, subscribe, and share our podcast with your personal and professional networks. All right, let's get started. Welcome, welcome. Thank you everyone for joining us today on our NAOP podcast. And we are very blessed today to be joined by two of my old friends and colleagues in the industry and fellow leaders within NAOP, Amanda Bates and Adam Lassoff. Welcome. Thank you for joining. Hey, Dave. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so happy to be here. And for anyone who's not familiar, Amanda is the Vice President and Portfolio Director for EQ Office, a Blackstone company, and she runs the Northern California region. And Adam is Managing Director in the San Francisco Office of JLL, where he works on the Investment Advisory Team. And I know it's a quick intro, so I'll let both of them just take a moment here to fill in a little bit more on their roles. So Amanda, do you want to start? Yes. Thanks, Dave. So at EQ Office, I'm responsible for and I oversee all market strategy, which includes new investments, leasing operations, or really any value creation happening in the San Francisco region. Along with EQ Office, I am also the current 2022 NAP San Francisco Bay Area NAP chapter president. And Dave, at JLL, um, I sit on our uh, office and life science advisory team uh, with a big focus on what we call our corporate capital markets business up and down the West Coast, where we're advising sellers on the disposition of most of their single tenant assets, uh, where we're really focused on kind of the credit and the companies that occupy the real estate as opposed to the real estate itself. Well, thank you guys for that intro. And I appreciate both of you guys making the time because I know it's uh, busy roles that you're both in these days. And maybe that's a good place to start, because I know this isn't where either of you really started your career. Um, and I've always found it so interesting just hearing the stories of how you guys got to where you are. And I know both of you made big career moves during the pandemic, uh, post-March 2020. So Amanda, do you want to give us just a little backdrop on the change and move to EQ office and what drove that and what the role is doing for you now versus where you were previously? Yes. Thanks, Dave. So I've been in EQ office a little over a year now, which in COVID times feels much longer than that. Prior to this, I spent seven years at Kilroy Realty, a West Coast office REIT. And I was on actually a maternity leave when COVID hit. So it was a very interesting time in my professional and personal career. It really gave me a lot of perspective. And I think, as all of us know, COVID took away a lot of work opportunities and personal opportunities, but it also brought to light other opportunities. I think gave everyone some extra time to think about their career and their life and what's important to them. And to me, kind of what I thought about is it all really boils down to that it's really a challenging time to be an office owner or office developer and office acquisitions right now. And I wanted to work somewhere that was going to continue to challenge me and be forward thinking and really be inclusive in the conversations about what the future of office would entail. And I was you know, drawn to the leadership here and it's been a great experience for the past year so far. That's great. And Adam, you too, you also made the move post-COVID breakout. Yeah, COVID really, uh, I think for all of us, we were, we're sitting at home and we were kind of evaluating you know, both our personal and professional lives. And I, I think for me, what I realized was I, I just wanted to do something different within the industry. 
And so I had been with Cushman and Wakefield for 11 years. And, you know, leaving Cushman and Wakefield was definitely the most difficult decision I've ever made uh, career-wise. Um, but also personally, I, I, you develop really, really close relationships uh, with your peers. I could say all of my team was at my wedding. I, I still consider the people at Cushman my family and, and some of my closest friends. But I think there was an opportunity at JLL to really do something different, which, you know, like Amanda, was a bigger challenge and, you know, allowed me to cover a larger geography, allowed me to specialize a little bit more in the single tenant space. And after a lot of discussions with both my family, my peers, my clients, um, even some of my competitors, uh, I made the jump and it, it was scary. And it's been over a year now. And as Amanda says, it feels like it's been five years, but uh, obviously it's been an incredible experience. Do I miss uh, the, the people I used to work with? Absolutely. But do I love what I'm doing right now? I, I absolutely love it. And I have no regrets. I noticed neither of you mentioned compensation. So are, should I consider this sincere answers or read anything into that? If you're working in real estate transactions right now, you're probably not making any money. So I think, <laughs> no, it's, look, from my standpoint, compensation is important. It's at the top of the list always. But I would say, you know, in making this decision, compensation had little to do with my decision. It was more kind of what did I want, you know, intellectually, what did I want to do? Where did I see myself in five years? I, I think a lot of those were the factors that played in. And it was less about compensation, at least for me. For me, the compensation part of it was more about my risk tolerance. You know, did I want to be somewhere where I was making money in, in stock awards? Do I want to be somewhere that promote was the major part of my job? Or in the role that I'm in, it's a salary and bonus and promote based structure. And that was what was important for me in my current lifestyle. Yeah, I think you make both Adam and I very jealous. And we can talk later in the podcast about how well all those folks who started our career in office for the last 10 <laughs> or 15 plus years are feeling about it right now. But we both took these jobs before the, the big inflation increase. So maybe we should have asked for some inflation protection in our salaries because I definitely <laughs> did not. True statement. Uh, so in addition to your guys' roles that you're in now that obviously have been a long progression to get to where you are, I know that both of you at the same time with these transitions also were in leadership roles within NAOP. Both of you guys are actually, we're talking to the current and the past president for 2022 and 2021 respectively. So it was a very interesting time to be working in an organization that was so much based around networking during the time of COVID and everything moving online. And Adam, you were probably in the heart of it more than any of us. Uh, for people who don't know, I was present in 2020 as we transitioned from in-person events to virtual events. And Adam, you, for the entire year, I think, carried nothing but a virtual bucket of water. So maybe you can speak to that a little bit and just tell us how that effect was for you from a leadership perspective and how that really affected um, your time as president and your role in NAOP. I was really excited about the NAOP position when I took on the role. I, 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 to be in a leadership position with such a great organization, I was thrilled. But I, I will say, like, I had more fear around this role than I did joining a new company in COVID. Uh, I was, you know, before COVID, I, I just knew that I could steer the ship. Uh, you, Dave, you had done just such a great job with the chapter. It was financially sound. We had a lot of great events going forward. And then when COVID hit, I, 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 my biggest concern was like, am I going to run this organization to the ground? And candidly, it, it kept me up at night. And really, the team we had on the board, the, the members, the sponsors, I think it was such a great collaborative effort to kind of keep the organization flowing during COVID. Uh, we had a number of online events. We continued to provide content. 
we continue to invest in the chapter and providing value. But I, I, again, it was really a, a change for me because my expectation was that, you know, I would be speaking in public. We would have a lot of these in-person events and the experience ended up being a lot different. But I, I'm really proud, I think, of what we accomplished at the time. And then with Amanda taking over now and seeing the chapter continue to grow as we come out of, you know, the, the COVID or the lockdown, whatever we want to call it. But I, but I will say there was a lot of sleepless nights for me, uh, making sure that, you know, we would continue to have dollars coming in, whether through events or whether through sponsors. But again, it was a really valuable experience for me because I, I kind of put that fear to the side and I kept kind of going forward and just utilizing the board and the people around me. And it was just a really valuable experience. And you avoided the heart palpitations that come with public speaking. Yeah, so, I, I think I'm the nice. first president, maybe in the last several decades, who did not have to speak in public once, which was one of my biggest concerns when I first took on the presidency. So I'm still due for a public speaking engagement if anyone wants to hire me. We'll get you out there one more time. I appreciate sure. it. Uh, well, I think there's obviously a lot of pent up demand, as Amanda is seeing now in this year, and bringing back in-person networking events. Amanda, can you tell us a little bit about how it's been going and how turnout's been, how it's been seeing people return to in-person? Yeah, so similar to Adam, I think you decide to be president or get asked to be president and your first thoughts are about, oh, what am I going to get out of this organization and all the time I'm going to put into it? And then you quickly see the support around you and it quickly turns into how can I give back and how can I make sure everyone else has a great experience out of this? Certainly, I had a similar experience to Adam that I was most excited right away as being president and getting to go to Washington, D.C. and go to the chapter leadership and legislative retreat in 2021. It was virtual. And then even in 2022, it was it was canceled last minute due to Omicron. Um, and the legislative side really excited me and is something that I wasn't involved in before. But I think through all of COVID, NAOP is, is not unique there. And you know we all learned about compassion and comfort levels of different people and how can we provide something that works for the largest amount of audience. So we've been trying to be as creative as possible, both on the board and in the programs that we provide, you know, having virtual options, having in-person options, our first big event, uh, the Dealmakers Uncorked event at the at Brooksfield's 415 Natoma. We focused on a venue that would be a draw, had, had good airflow and op- open air doors. And I think we were not surprised to see the turnout was well above what was expected. And we've seen that in all the marquee events that we've had so far. People want to network. People can self-select what they're comfortable with. And it's just NAOP's job to provide different types of events that everyone can select what they're most comfortable going to. And what we're seeing with people come back and doing in-person events, I just myself came back. I know Adam did as well from a two-day long event down in Half Moon Bay that had maybe 250 people or so all in person. What are you seeing in terms of any changes in the demographics? And what I'm really thinking about there is a lot of the younger folks we talk to who are still anecdotal stories of some more coming into the office, some less coming into the office. You're getting a sense that some of these folks so far have missed out on that networking part that to us was such a fundamental part of our career development in the industry. I'm just wondering if you're seeing that anywhere so far in who's showing up for these things. Amanda, I'll put that question to you since Adam can't see all the other people who are on the Zoom call on the other side. Yes. I mean, I see the same at my company and throughout the industry. 
younger people haven't had the opportunity to network, which means that they they don't know the people they're going to run into at the events. They may feel less comfortable at an event if they don't know people. And it's just kind of a cycle. The more events that you go to, the more comfortable you are going to events. And that's one of the reasons why I joined this industry and why I think I've thrived in the industry is just I really like the people and the networking aspects of it. And I do think that there are less younger people in the industry and there's less younger people taking advantage of the networking events. So I know that this is something that Adam and I talk about a lot, encouraging our own companies and encouraging our industry and encouraging NAOP to find ways to bring more young people into the into the industry and showing them the benefits of networking that we all see here. Either of you have any good anecdotes on how that was fundamental in the start of your careers? Yeah, I'll jump in there. I think this is a pretty good story. So I moved from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco eight years ago after working at HFF, now now JLL. I reached out to a, a colleague across the country who I didn't know personally, just knew his email, but he had moved to the principal side from HFF and his name happened to be Dave Carroll. And he let me know that the night before he played poker with someone who's looking to hire an analyst. And lo and behold, I took that job. And then the first week on the job, I was taken out um, by one of my colleagues with to a bunch of Cushman brokers. And you know, my first lunch that I remember was a lunch meeting Adam Lassoff. And then here I am eight years later, considering Dave and Adam colleagues of NAOP and friends of mine. And I think it just demonstrates the importance of networking from the beginning. I, I remember companies that I interviewed with, that was the first networking that I had here in San Francisco. And those are friends that I still have today. Yeah. And Dave, not to like jump around, but I, I think for me, networking was critical in terms of not just the progress I've made professionally, but also just how much more I've enjoyed working in this industry, which is very relationship-based. And, and I can talk about just my experiences. You know, I moved here from Chicago about 11 years ago and took a job with Cushman as an analyst. And, and I didn't have any network out here. You know, I moved, I, I chased a girl out to San Francisco. I, in fact, I had never actually been to San Francisco before I started visiting her. And, and so when I moved out here, I was a little nervous, obviously. I took the job at Cushman. Uh, but I didn't have really much of a network outside of the people that I was working with. So uh, NAOP had started promoting its YPG uh, program, which at the time was really in its infancy. Uh, it had happened down in Southern California, but this was going to be the first class. And I knew if I was going to develop relationships, uh, this was a huge opportunity. And, and that's the way it was sold to me was it, it was not just personal development, but it was really developing relationships with kind of your class. And I applied to the program, I got in, and it was really my first introduction to clients outside of the office. Um, you know, I had been with Cushman for about six months and, you know, as an analyst, oftentimes you're just kind of stuck behind a computer a lot. And it was uh, what I consider to be uh, one of the most important parts or experiences I had in my career uh, because of the relationships I developed that I still hold today, you know, through that program, you develop very close relationships with people through various personal development exercises. And I can tell you, if you fast forward 11 years, I'm still transacting with people that I went through that program with. And oftentimes when I'm pitching them, I feel like I have somewhat of a leg up because of the close relationship we developed during that program. So look, the networking side of the business is critical. I, I think oftentimes we forget and we just coast. And I think it's really when you're having lunch with people, when you're in front of them, you're just developing more knowledge, you're developing ideas, you're collaborating. And I, I think that's really important in this business. I agree. I especially think in a market like San Francisco, where so many of us are transplants, as both of you are, 
it's paramount to forming those relationships. And as you might say, when you're networking and talking to people, you're getting into the flow of deals and activity. Absolutely. So beyond that, though, beyond the networking, what are some other things that you're seeing in the chapter now that are exciting or scary or you think some of the bigger opportunities or challenges we're seeing next year? So one thing that we talk about on the board a lot and something that's near and dear to my heart is really just a, a passion to bringing more people in the younger generation that we talked about into the industry, adding diversity to all of our events and everything that we're planning. And it's just been really amazing to see that play out in all the marquee events that we've had in person. We have a mix of all types of levels of people at these events. We're bringing students into the NAOP fold. And that's something that I think is really important and really energizes me and the board um, right now. I would say just there continues, and I'm seeing it firsthand right now, that there is an absolute pent-up demand from the younger people within the industry to network. And I think we just talked about it on it, but like a lot of people that have been in this industry for just a few years have missed on a big component of the business. And so when you think about YPG, I know we are obviously going to be we're, we've been holding some information sessions for next year's class, and the demand for these information sessions are off the charts. You know, there's about a dozen people within JLL that have asked to be part of this next year's class, and we have to basically tell some people to hang tight. We can't allow you all in, but it, it just feels like there's a lot of demand from the younger generation to network, and I think a lot of it's based on advice from their senior level, you know, peers that this is a really critical part of the business. And I think YPG is a huge opportunity. And obviously, I, I keep pushing it. But it, like I said, it was a turning point in my career. And to see all the young people in this industry who want to participate, it, it's really, I'm excited about it. It gets me really jazzed up because I think right now, the younger people are who we want to kind of promote as much as we can and get them into jobs that they like, that they're going to grow in. Because I will say it is a little bit challenging to find young people right now. Oftentimes, you know, they're looking at other industries and we want to make sure that people realize the value proposition of working in real estate. And I think the networking component is a huge part of that. You know, I hear both of you talk about YPG often, and it takes me right back to grade school and being jealous of my friends who went to summer camp, where it feels like you're always missing out on something else that someone else is uh, telling you how great and wonderful it is. And so, Amanda, I know we haven't heard from you, but you also were a YPG grad. Can you speak to it a little bit and what it did for you? Yes, I completely echo what Adam's saying. I mean, at the end of the day in our industry, it's your connections are your currency. And YPG was my first step into building my currency in real estate. I was out to dinner last night with a group of six people. One bailed because of COVID was going to be seven. It was going to be a mix of people in my YPG class and some in the year below me. And then there was one person who did not go through the YPG program. And we're pulling up old photos of trips to Vegas that we took as classes together. The class below me went to the Backstreet Boys concert all together. And, you know, the one that didn't get to be part of it is obviously networking just as much as we did, but had to, you know, had to do it all on their own. Well, I feel bad for anyone who missed out on the Backstreet Boys opportunity. That tells you something. Yes. Also, it also tells you how long ago you were in YPG. Yes, that part too. <laughs> true, true. And so I know YPG does include an opportunity for a lot of mentorship, as does also the mentorship portal to give people chances to learn from senior leaders in the industry. Can you talk a little bit about what mentorship role played in your career development and where you are now? Because I know I think both of you are participating in the mentorship program now as mentors to mentees. Yeah, I'll, I can start and just talk about one. What does mentorship look like for me today? And you can be I think it's important at wherever you are in your career that you serve a role as both a mentor and a mentee. 
And right now, as a mentor, it is probably at the top of my list in terms of helping people find their way throughout their careers. I work closely with, you know, I was part of the Project Destin group that JLL did, um, helping people uh, who are in school, looking for jobs out of school. You know, we've helped place many people both within JLL, but also with, you know, clients, with competitors. It it is one of the things I enjoy the most about being in this industry is that mentorship plays such a key role. I really enjoy seeing people grow in their career, and I like being a part of that. Whether they're in college, whether they're mid-level, whether they're an analyst, I, I just find mentorship being so important. So I try to participate and take a role as a mentor as much as I can. And then at the same time, you know, being a mentee, I, I think is also really important. I, I, from the very beginning of my career, in seeking a mentor, I always looked for someone that had what I wanted. And that doesn't always mean financially, but just someone that I see you know, that's successful, that continues to have a good life outside of real estate. And I've had a number of mentors through the course of my career and mentors that I continue to talk to every day. I I had a boss uh, back in Chicago when I was 22 years old who would run me through the ground, but he'd always always served as a great mentor to me. And I was just texting him this morning, you know, wishing him a happy birthday. And he's telling me his his kid just graduated high school and he's now going to play baseball in college. And I literally remember when his kid was two years old. So it's really fun to kind of continue those relationships wherever you are in your career. And I think it's really important that you serve, again, both roles as a mentor and a mentee. Similar to what Adam said, you know, my involvement with NAOF, it's definitely a get what you give organization. The more you give, the more that you get. That's the same of what I feel about being a mentor. So there's formal opportunities for mentorship that I take on at, at NAOP through the Developing Leaders Portal. And I was connected with a mentee who was part of the, the CREATE program, which is a NAOP and BOMA partnership with SF State and Merritt College. Then I was able to give back and teach two classes at Merritt College. And, you know, it's really important to me. That's why I took this job, this specific role, to have the opportunity to give back and be a mentor for others for other people in my industry and in my company. And I think I give this advice to people all the time is, you know, when you're looking for mentors, don't forget that whatever level you are at, you can be a mentor. And in terms of, you know, I think the question also included, you know, what do you find best about mentors? Or to me, it's about, you know, look for mentors that you emulate and think about the first ones you'd want to call for advice. I had the same thing. I mean, I called both of you and other mentors of mine when I was looking for this job to talk through it. And just remember that this all comes full circle. You In this industry, you're going to work with people again that you worked with before. And, you know, in terms of mentors that really meant the most to me in my career, I think the most significant thing I've learned from a mentor is just really empowerment to speak out and have a point of view. You know, I'm sure we've all had some, you know, bosses who were not as strong or were not as empowering. And the ones that are able to empower you to grow on your own, you don't just have to listen to their advice. They encourage you to have your own opinion and, you know, not stifle your curiosity. And ultimately, those are the ones that inspire me to be better in my in my career. And I'll always I'll always thank those mentors that inspired me to be, to have more of a point of view. And just, I, I want to plug in, and I think this is really unique to San Francisco, but the San Francisco market, I think, has a better mentor dynamic than most other markets around the country. Um, and, and one thing people always say when they come into the market is, I don't understand how all of the competitors spend so much time with each other, whether it's on the principal side or on the brokerage side. Like, in New York or in LA, it's like they're enemies when they see each other's on the street. But here, I think it's just a very collegial environment. And I think mentorship plays a huge role there. And when I was leaving uh, Cushman, I did have a number of conversations with 
people like Dave and Amanda uh, who were on the client side, but I also talked to many people who are my competitors and asked them what their thoughts were. I even had conversations with people at Cushman and, and let them know what I was thinking. So the, the dynamic of the San Francisco market, I, I think it's really exciting. And I think we're always trying to help each other, even if we're competing. And I think that's very unique. You don't see that in a lot, a lot of other markets around the country. That's a great point. And I think as both of you now transition to these roles where you're the mentors and the managers of folks below you, how does that play into the trend of folks now coming back to the office? So are you able to still effectively mentor or manage other people when they're working from home or doing part-time? Or do you feel we need to start getting people back and being in person to be able to actually provide that mentorship? I think it's certainly easier to do in person. At my company, we have a unofficial text that goes out every Sunday and I say what days I'm going to be in the office and ask my junior team what days they're going to be in the office so we can try to coordinate lunches and coordinate ways for them to listen in on calls with me. And it's it's just not as top of mind for me when I'm at home to remember to include someone, to remember to check in with someone. It's just way easier to do in a casual way. You know, I walked in today and my office had breakfast sandwiches out and I talked to people who I don't normally talk to in the office. And if if that didn't happen, it's just one extra thing you have to, and it's an extra step to remember to be a mentor virtually that is easier to do in person. Yeah, I think at JLO, I mean, look, we, we are, and, and we say we are a work from work company. You know, we were back in the office earlier than most groups. So I, I can say, you know, my team, you know, there's, you know, within just my direct team, there's about 15 to 20 of us and we're all in five days a week. So we don't really know what else, what the alternative is. It's almost like a foreign language, you know, working from home. I can tell you on the days when someone unfortunately gets COVID or is sick and is not coming to the office, even those few days when they're not in the office, I can sense the the distance or the, the lack of communication. And so I just stress, and maybe that's specific to this role or our jobs within real estate that, you know, there is no alternative, you know, from being in the office. And we really stress that. And we find it so important, not just to execute on behalf of our clients, but also to grow each other, to collaborate, to be innovative. You're just not able to do that, I think, from a a mobile environment. At least that's in our experience. And we will continue to promote coming to the office to the extent we're allowed to. And it's five days a week. And something I'd add to that is, you know, I heard a quote at our last NAOP Capital Markets event by our keynote speaker. We talked about productivity you know, how can you make people or how can you make companies more productive? You could either hire more people or you could, you know, make them more efficient. And it's not really a market that we really have the ability to hire more people right now. And I think office is a tool to make people more efficient, more productive, more collaborative. So yes, this is all self-serving. We are in the office industry. But when I hear some companies make these work from home comments, you have to take that into perspective that that's what's in the best interest of their their company and their industry. For example, Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb, made a comment like something like, if the office didn't exist, would we invent it? And that's, you know, it's a little self-serving. You're in the industry of having people work from wherever or be wherever. But at the end of the day, that does ignore productivity, efficiency, collaboration, mentorship. Those are all important. And I think the office plays a big role in that. Whether you love them or hate them, I thought it was fun to see Elon Musk's email to his Tesla workforce. I think it was on Monday or Tuesday that said, if you're not going to be working in the office, we're going to assume you no longer work here. 
and he's basically making it a mandate that they have to be in the office 40, 40 hours a week. And I think his take was, you're not able to create anything or innovate anything if you're working from home. And he, he pointed to the companies that have been working from home exclusively and how they have not created anything in the last you know 12 to 24 months where you see some of these other companies that are innovating and, and are needing to do that in an office environment. Yeah, I think my favorite quote from that letter was didn't he also say, you can go pretend to work somewhere yeah. else. Very, very indicative of maybe how some folks are viewing people who are choosing to work from home when they don't have to. Yeah, work from home. I remember pre-pandemic when you said you were, quote unquote, working from home, it meant you were uh, too hungover to come into the office. <laughs> Classic Friday yeah. morning. So in uh, hopefully more folks returning to the office and management returning to the office, because I think that is a key piece of it. Uh, another senior leader we know in our industry said to me, that he thought managers and mentors were doing a real disservice to their employees and mentees by not going into the office if they missed days, because how fundamental that was to all of us in the start of our careers. And we had that manager or mentee, to your point, Amanda, who just calls the person in the room to listen to them on through their phone calls or participate in a quick conference call or a casual conversation for five to 10 minutes, you know, passing by. So what else in terms of coming back to the office are you guys seeing out there in terms of trends? that you think are interesting, and maybe this is a good time to talk about frightening, given what we're seeing in the most recent couple of weeks here, uh, affecting us and office space in particular, just the industry as a whole. But we can start with you, Adam. You're asking kind of what kind of keeps me up at night, or more just what are kind of some of the trends? We, you could word it in a happy way or in a negative way. You can say what gets your juices flowing that you're excited for, and what keeps you up at night grinding your teeth? Look, I mean, the thing that keeps me up at night is, you know, what is the future of the office, you know, relative to what the stock looks like today? I mean, look, I, I truly believe the office isn't going away. And my concern is what happens? Are we in an overbuilt environment? And are, are we basically marketing or selling an illiquid asset class um, on some of these commodity buildings, it, which made up a big you know, portion of our business historically? And so my concern is like, okay, are we really going to be stuck at a 35 to 40% utilization rate in San Francisco going forward? Because that, that, that scares me. Um, because oftentimes when I, when I go down that rabbit hole, I start thinking, am I doing the right thing in my career? Should I be pivoting to something that's more desirable? You know, you can, people are always going to live in multifamily properties. But right now, a lot of people are saying, and maybe the press is sensationalizing it, but that you know, the office is dying. And I've seen some pretty sophisticated research papers come out recently that say that, you know, based on kind of utilization rates and what people are thinking about on the office going forward, that you could see valuation declines as much as 35 to 40% sustainably. And, and that's the kind of stuff that spooks me. That being said, you know, what keeps my juices flowing is, you know, the emails that Elon Musk sends to his workforce. Because if people start going on that bandwagon, it implies that you're going to see a lot more people going back to the office. And, and right now, the employees have a lot of leverage and it's hard to hire people. And in order to hire people, you have to give them as much flexibility as you want. But as that kind of leverage maybe pivots a little bit to the employer, you know, hopefully we're going to start seeing people come back to the office. And that's what really excites me. When we're back, we're able to sell office buildings that are desirable, but it's just a little spooky right now. And, and I'm only touching on kind of the office market. I don't even want to get into kind of the interest rate environment and just the macro economy because there's a lot of things out there too right now that are a little concerning. 
I think just as Adam said, there are clearly winners and losers emerging within the office industry and in San Francisco specifically. But I really do believe that San Francisco doesn't have a vacancy problem. We have a COVID problem because as we all start to travel again, you go to New York, you go to Austin, those office markets are thriving. So clearly they see office or those companies see office as a tool there. It's just in San Francisco, the power has shifted from the employer to the employee. And I'm sure it's going to be that way for a while, but it's not going to be that way forever. And you know, I think I'm I'm fired up about having to be more innovative than innovative than the next company. You know, we can't just do what everyone else is doing. How can you make the buildings that you own or you want to buy more competitive? I mean, we're we're looking at all those things internally. I'm even pricing out a reskinning of an entire building. You know, we're seeing opportunities that we'd rather have a vacant building than a partially leased building because you have the opportunity to be more creative, add a roof deck, reskin the building. You know, you have to be creative and I think you know, it's an exciting time and an exciting mental challenge to go through. So that part is exciting to me. How can we help shape the future of office? Yeah, I'd say one of the challenges I think you guys are both seeing and I'm seeing as well out there right now on the office side is the difficulty to transact when there's no financing. And so we're in an environment right now that when we're talking about value add office. I don't think I've seen the financing in this state since maybe 2009. We're in a place where I think it's extremely challenging to find anyone to step up, even the classic groups and debt funds that we think of that would have stepped up on some of these transactions before waiting on the sidelines patiently. And so it might be a slow transaction period here going into the summer and the winter. One thing that's interesting, and Amanda and I were talking about this yesterday, is that you are going to start seeing motivated sellers in the office market who need to clear an asset, whether it's because it's a fun life issue or whether it's a corporate seller who just no longer needs the real estate. And I think what that creates are data points. And as you mentioned, yes, there may no be, not be financing available. I, I think there's definitely financing. It's just very cost prohibitive uh, at the values that you know sellers want. But I think once you see motivated sellers, you're going to see what rock bottom pricing looks like. You'll start seeing some data points come to the market. Uh, there are a number of corporate sellers in San Francisco that are going to be shedding some assets this year, some larger buildings that are coming to the market primarily vacant. And you'll see kind of what the worst of the worst looks like. You know, these are commodity vacant buildings that are going to cost anywhere from $300 to $400 to make them at, you know, leasable. But you'll see the deals transact. And there's definitely going to be buyers underwriting the deal and bidding on the deal. But it's going to be at pricing that we never thought we would get back to. But I think once you start seeing some of those data points register, you'll start seeing more transactions occur. And like, I think we're all, we, what gets my juices flowing, regardless of how bad the market is, is transaction volume. And when you start seeing deals, and we look, we love deals. Uh, that's kind of why we're in the business. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that, both in San Francisco and Oakland and down in the Valley as well. Similar to what Adam said, when I started EQ, our, our capital kind of, our capital at the beginning of when I started EQ started with a nationwide effort to put out our BRE core money um, in an inflation-protected way, and that's no longer the case. Now we're looking to put out money through our opportunistic funds, be more creative, find opportunities to add value, and those are the types of deals I want to work on anyway. So it's exciting. There's always going to be buyers that don't need debt. You know, It was certainly nice to spend a lot of time at a REIT where you didn't have to put individual asset-level financing on an acquisition. But as Adam said, there will be sellers who have to sell, and we all just want to know where the pricing is, and we're eager to jump in. We just don't want to be the first one, and we want to know what our assets are truly worth. Yeah, it almost feels like we actually didn't have a recession. At least there was no COVID recession. 
right? I mean, what are rents in San Francisco? They're down three, four percent from well, where they were. Well, if you look at our appraisals, there's certainly no recession. <laughs> it's interesting. I, we've talked so much about office, and I, I don't want to discount. You know, the last couple of years, office has been brutal. But when you think about the other asset classes, specifically those that kind of nap and capture, you know, whether it's industrial, uh, life sciences, cold storage, multifamily, those asset values uh, have hit peak and, and have performed really well. And Dave, I know you obviously your company owns a, a number of multifamily properties, and you know performance at the the asset level there have been fantastic. And on the capital market side, even with interest rates moving, there's still there's still an absolute thirst for that type of product, both on the equity and debt side. So it's really the recession hit office probably more than any other asset class. And, and I'm even hearing now that there's core money chasing retail, that debts, you know, lenders want exposure to retail. So you're really seeing office is the one that really didn't get the benefits of some of the other asset classes. Yeah. And the reason I don't talk about multifamily is we like to keep as many people out of the space as possible. <laughs> <laughs> We'll say for that sector, because we can talk about it briefly, uh, you know, we do a lot of our investing in California, Northern California specifically. And I think the biggest headwind we see there is really government related, you know, and a big part of the advocacy efforts of NAOPI and the chapter have to do with that. As right now with inflation peaking, you're seeing a lot of proposals coming out about changing rent control laws, both statewide and within the city of San Francisco. When you wouldn't see Aaron Peskin now is proposing for board approval to put on the November ballot a proposition to uh, provide rent control on new construction in San Francisco, which we've never seen. So you are seeing some trends there that I think will provide headwinds as well in the multifamily sector. So it's not just office who's got its own issues to work through or industrial with Amazon saying they're gonna give back half their space. But all of us, it should be an interesting time. And as you said, Adam, we're all hoping for some transactions and people on the buy side are certainly open to see some opportunities and some sellers finally capitulate and meet the market. Any deals that come to mind in particular for either of your recent or upcoming that you think are indicative of some interesting trends or things that get you excited? As I was talking about with Adam yesterday, we have our first multi-tenant office building in San Francisco that just came for sale. I think everyone's going to tour it. Everyone wants to know what's going on. I don't know who really wants to be the buyer there, but you know, certainty drives pricing and we all we all are rallying together to know where the pricing is in the industry. And and that's exciting for us. Yeah. And look, the building is as, I don't want to say as commodity as it gets, but it's just very vanilla. And if this was, you know, four years ago when you had, you know, six or seven deals in the market at any given time, it probably wouldn't get the amount of interest that it's getting right now. I mean, for one, it's really the only deal in the market right now. But I think, too, it's, it's sizable and you have a pretty willing seller who's going to meet the market. So I think, you know, all eyes are on that asset. And I think it'll be interesting to see for, you know, just for San Francisco's sake. Adam, in terms of what you're seeing capital markets, we're talking about these commodity buildings being off the pricing that they peaked at a few years ago. How much do you think the trophy buildings are off the pricing that they peaked at a few years ago, if at all? Yeah, look, if you ask me 60 days ago, I, I'd say they'd be, they're worth 10 to 15% more than they were pre-COVID because the interest rate environment supported it. And also, you know, we have continued to see very strong fundamentals in the quality space uh, to the point where they have not been impacted at all. But I think what's really happened, and this is where it gets really confusing to price real estate right now, is that we've seen the cost of borrowing jump 
150 basis points over the last 60 days. And whether you're an unlevered or a levered buyer, that impacts valuation. It impacts on the cap rate that you're going to pay day one. It's going to impact on the cap rate you're going to sell it for in five to 10 years. And I think because of that, we've seen all assets have some type of impairment in value on a cap rate basis. Some asset classes haven't seen as much of impairment, specifically multifamily and shorter duration industrial deals. But any type of trophy asset that has good wall, and when I say wall, weighted average lease term, you've seen pricing be impacted by as much as 5 to 10% because people are underwriting higher cap rates because the cost of borrowing has gone up. By no means have cap rates gone up 150 basis points like the cost of debt, but you're still seeing it impact the market. So whatever you're selling right now, it's probably worth less than it was 30 to 60 days ago. Yeah, again, deal specific. It's interesting to think about some of the commodity office you guys are referring to coming out and something like 180 Townsend that sold where was 60, 90 days ago, I think was highest price per pound ever paid for office in San Francisco at over 1700 a foot. And Adam, you probably know the terms better than I do. I think it was five, five and a half cap, somewhere in that yeah, range. Yeah. And, and look, it's somewhat of an anomaly because you had a high net worth group buy it. Look, it was great execution. Uh, by one of my competitors. So I, I'm not going to fault them for that. But I would say it's in that sub $100 million space. I think where we're seeing the biggest impairment right now is in kind of the true in- institutional space. And that's, you know, call it anything over $150 million, where you're more likely going to ha- need debt to execute on that deal. I don't know if uh, the buyer of that deal is going to employ asset level debt. But on these larger deals, we've seen the biggest impact in valuation because, you know, financing does come into play. And, and as we mentioned before, whether you're a fixed rate or floating rate borrower, your cost of borrowing has gone up dramatically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Amanda, I don't know how much you can share, but you guys obviously have a very large footprint and portfolio. Do you guys think about repositioning and revitalizing some of these quote unquote commodity assets? Yes, not in the San Francisco region, but the majority of assets that we have nationwide across the country are repositioning into highest and best uses that are not office. So whether it's scraping for industrial, converting to residential in in Los Angeles. Those are the types of deals that are selling right now, you know, that have a different highest and best use, maybe have a different financing source. So in San Francisco, we, you know, are tracking things that we want to sell actively, but we want to get the price that we think it's worth, or certainly the price we thought it was worth last year or 60 to 90 days ago. So we have our our eyes and we're, we're very close to the pulse of what things are valuing at in San Francisco right now. And so as we are going into this transition period in the market, which hopefully creates another new reset on value and a bunch of opportunities for young professionals, any piece of advice that come to your mind as you think back to where you were in previous cycles in 2008, 9, 10, or you know, going back to post.com era and what you would say to some of the younger folks in our industry wanting to get ahead of the opportunities? I would just do a simple exercise. I say, if you're young in the industry, Choose five people that you look up to professionally, personally, and reach out to them and have coffee with them because the chances are they're going to say yes. And that's, as I mentioned, is specific to San Francisco. But I think those meetings are influential in in someone's early part of their career. And you should never be shy about reaching out to have a conversation. And I can guarantee you, you'll benefit from those conversations. It's not necessarily going to lead to a job. It's not necessarily going to lead to a deal but you will get some piece of tidbit out of those conversations that will stick with you. And I think it's really, really important to have that senior level mentorship. And I think it's also really important that you 
put any nerves around it and reach out to them because I think you just will benefit from those conversations. Similarly, I always tell my analysts or colleagues who are deep in Argus or underwriting that tell me they're too busy to join me on a tour or on a lunch to step back and not think about you know where they want to be in five years, what type of company they want to be at, but think about the people they respect at our company or in the industry and what skills do those people have. It's not going to be that that person is the expert in Argus and the expert in Excel. It's going to be about the connections and the relationships that those people have. It's not meant to be transactional. It's just that if you want to grow and get to the next level in your career, you have to start now. Yeah, and just one thing to add is, you know, no matter how difficult a situation is, no matter how bad a job is, whether you are leaving a company or you're getting laid off or the unfortunate you get actually fired, always take the high road because things always come back around and this industry is small and you'll never know who you meet back up with you know, five years down the road. And I can say with certainty, there were situations where you know, I could have taken a really aggressive uh, stance and dropped as many F-bombs as I wanted to uh, to someone's face, and I decided not to. And I think that's paid dividends down the road as you kind of reconnect with someone down, you know, you never know when you're going to meet back up with them. You're going to need a favor with them. You're going to be pitching them a deal, or you're going to be wanting a job with them down the road. So I think it's really important that you have integrity in this business, no matter what point you are in your career. Uh, Amanda and Adam, those are both great pieces of advice and great thoughts. Any just general final parting thoughts on the industry, on NAOP, on networking? on being young, on going out and having fun. Yes, I just encourage everyone listening to see NAOP as a tool in their career and prove to your company the value of NAOP in your career and and the benefit of you getting out there, learning about assets, going on tours, networking with new people. It's beneficial to your career. It's beneficial to your company. And we really hope that NAOP is able to provide those educational opportunities, networking opportunities so please reach out to any of us, check out our website, and and I hope to see you at events in the fall and everything that is coming up at NAOP. And this is a little bit of a different tone and subject than what Amanda just talked about, but we are entering into what I would consider to be some of the most difficult environments we've seen in possibly a decade. And you're going to hear some senior level people uh, enter the office some days with it pretty pessimistic view on the world. And I just want to remind everyone that this industry is cyclical and there are going to be times when things feel really, really bad, but it doesn't stay like that forever. And sometimes we forget that. I I came into the office today cursing about a deal that went sideways and saying, you know, this is the worst market we've ever been in. Office is dead. And I looked at my analyst and he looked at me and I'm like, how am I going to retain a guy when he hears me saying that the, uh, the business that we're trying to sell is dead. And so we just have to remember that this is cyclical. Things will feel bad at times and they're not going to be bad forever. And on the flip side, there's going to be times when things are going really, really well and we're making money and we're transacting. And we have to remind ourselves it's not going to always be that good either. And so this is a, a patient business. Uh, there are going to be good times and bad times, but I think, you know, stick with it and things will kind of be up on the up again. And Again, this is why I get excited about coming to the office. You just never know what we're going to be confronted with, but we're allowed to be creative no matter how bad things feel. And it's really exciting. And I'm really excited about what's happening in the, you know, in the market, what you know, the next couple of years look like. So analysts, don't jump ship for that job in tech sales because now is the time to position yourself 
to come out like a rising phoenix and the opportunities that are here to come. Amanda and Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. It's so good to see you guys and hear your voices again. I really sincerely appreciate you guys being our first guinea pigs for our first Nail podcast. It's always nice to have old friends join me and make me feel comfortable for my first time doing one of these. So thank you. Dave, you did great. Uh, really happy to be here. It's always good seeing you guys. Uh, like I say, Amanda's said it great, but you know, we're friends. We've been doing this together for a while. I see us doing a lot more of this you know, in the future. So really happy to be here. Yes, Adam and Dave, so great to catch up and reminisce. And you really just strategize together about the opportunities to grow in the industry moving forward and together. All right. Well, thank you guys again. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today. And we hope to hear from more from you and see you next time. Really appreciate it. Hey, listeners. Thank you for joining our conversation and being part of NAOP San Francisco Bay Area Chapters podcast community. Our goal is to reach our listeners through dynamic engagements, both in and around all things commercial real estate. So if you like what you hear, please like, subscribe, and share our podcast with your personal and professional networks. We love feedback and would appreciate a review on whichever platform you prefer. And if you're interested in becoming a NAOP member, you can find out more at naopsfba.org. That's N-A-I-O-P-S-F-B-A.org. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, take care, and we hope you join us again.